0: Hello and welcome to episode 14 of Slime Wars on our podcast, Gold Talks. This is Nirali and we are here to bring to you words of wisdom from the artist and spiritual teacher E.J. Gold. Thanks to the power that be, the great mother slime mold who art our environment and our protectress, that we were able to manufacture lumps of unpolished synthetic laser gemstones with a simple lab furnished with nothing more than the standard equipment and supplies that you'd expect to see in your average A.D. 14th century Arabic alchemical laboratory. Because it's the great mother slime Mold who makes all those rules of chemistry work the way they do, so we can convert things atomically whenever we want to. Major General Zax currently operating... My physics research partner, Dr. Claude Needham, PhD, who is in turn operating my Plasma Fusion Research and Development Center in the garage out back, had been working at Elon undercover as an English professor, Clyde McNeedham, MA. He told somebody with obvious Pentagon connections that he could make a successful Flash Gordon-type death ray that could be orbited in space and aimed by a tracking station from anywhere on the surface of the Earth and that it would be completely and instantly effective against anything or anybody, including an orbital missile, normally impossible to stop with a counter-missile, coming towards you because it traveled to the target literally the speed of light, albeit coherent. Fortunately for the slime mold cause... Nobody believed that an associate professor of English with no tenure and absolutely no seniority could possibly know anything about a subject outside his classroom study guide, and anywhere in the California higher educational school system, they'd have been completely correct. General Zax was forced to abandon the Elon College professorial character after only a couple of days. How could he possibly have known there'd be a spelling quiz on Monday? (laughs) Frankly, I don't know how in the heck that guy got all the way up to the grade of general field officer unless it was a field commission. There's no way he could have made it through OCS because General Zax, although he'd never admit it in front of a board of inquiry, couldn't spell his way out of a cardboard Oriental food takeout type spore and mold transplant container. I won't go into precisely which faculty members and graduate students we occupied by possession that semester in AD 1959 at Elon College, nor the results on your culture of our invasive presences, because although I can afford to expose some of our aims and methods, I can't tell you everything if you expect me to let you live after I've finished my narrative. As a matter of fact, I've told you so much already that, quite frankly, I'm beginning to have my doubts. But don't worry, whenever I decide, you'll be the second to know. All my command-grade decisions are completely impartial. Us dreamwalkers can't make good command decisions if we get all involved in emotions and stuff. And I know you'll understand our attitude when I tell you that the loss of friends and family is not a big price to pay for a clear shot at some important battlescape objectives. But a thriving business, that's a different matter. That I would defend, at least to the death. With us sly molds, the loss of a going concern is like the loss of a good hunting dog. I know you rednecks will understand. (laughs) Uh, So when Bob Fenichel and I first built our medieval-style Arabic alchemical furnace, everybody thought we were nuts, just like everybody thought my cousin Rick was nuts when he presented a stack of carefully drawn plans for his cascading relay-type desktop computer in your year, A.D. 1957. The AD 1950s was when American psychiatry really got popular. It hadn't really been needed until then because American socialites hadn't yet gotten back into the -the round-the-clock cocaine-based socializing that symbolized the Roaring Twenties of Chicago, New York, and Philadelphia. It was the same non-stop round of coke and hash and alcohol partying that the muckamucks of high Viennese society had gotten themselves into just before the end of the AD 19th century. When cocaine addiction and the frenzy of sheer exhaustion and drug and alcohol dissipation made a millionaire of the defrocked Dr. Freud. It was Sigmund Freud's own unkickable cocaine habit that sent him into the realms of the subconscious, and the rest, if you know your Conan Doyle, you undoubtedly know. Thanks to his strange relationship with his beautiful young niece Anna, who didn't want to discuss it for the record when I interviewed her in AD 1922, Dr. Sigmund Freud made the connection between hysteria and the base brain, deeper and deeper levels of which could be reached by regression and other forms of hypnosis. This, of course, led him to the work of Mesmer and Count Caliostro, then to the medieval medical genius Paracelsus, who had a cure for syphilis, which was subsequently destroyed by the anti-Illuminati alien attack force at Basel, Switzerland, until I got the no-good back at the Battle of Basel two weeks later. It is in Basel that the average, attentive, and adept alchemical tourist will find most of what everyone is looking for. The posts are clearly marked by the pointing finger of the skin-stripped hand of the cadaver engraved for your edification in the large folio first edition of Vesalius's famous book on anatomy, De Corporis Humani Fabrica. Don't even bother looking for clues in the second edition, they won't be there was all in the first edition of exactly 400 copies, all of which went directly to those 400 medical doctors around Europe who were the trusted members of a secret society dedicated to maintaining medical secrecy and therefore absolute despotic rule over all questions medical. Maintaining a rule of secrecy, they often managed to suppress any bad publicity that might have been generated by a variety of deadly mistakes. All professions have them. And... Those members who dared become the forerunners of the modern physician bought their memberships in the secret society with money and blood, swearing terrible oaths should they betray the society in word or deed. That's why so many people involved with the Jack the Ripper killings in London had to be put away. Not because Jack was second in line for succession to the British crown, nor was it his well-publicized insanity and hatred of all womankind, no. No. Those weren't the reasons for the bloody cover-up that followed his confession, written in a horse blood on a brick theater wall. The real reason that all the scribbled notes he left behind had to be destroyed is that they told anyone who knew anything that he was a member in good standing of a bloody ritualistic secret society which included virtually everyone of high rank in Victorian England. Naturally, he had to die. And so did everyone who read his notes, either on paper or scrawled in blood on walls near dead prostitutes, killed in revenge for his syphilitic condition caused by contact with an infected prostitute in Paris on his first continental grand tour. There was no secret society to keep my cousin Rick from being sent to a child psychologist, though, when he tried to tell people about his desktop computer that would revolutionize computers and someday make it possible to compress a whole building's worth of computer with a brain the size of a small asteroid into one tiny little notebook-sized thing with a keyboard. After only a couple of weeks, the psychologist had Rick convinced that he was just some silly kid with a daydream, a fantasy which he'd carried out on paper by producing a blueprint schematic of having invented some silly thing called a desktop computer, and that those silly plans were just for fun, not to be taken seriously. So the following year, when Sylvania paid for his schooling and sent him to summer camps in Europe and other programs for painfully smart kids, he was allowed to drop out of therapy. Luckily for him, a scientist checked out his plans before they put him away. Not like with me, the night I indiscreetly announced my rediscovery of the famed so-called Atlantean Death Crystals, actually a variant of the ruby-cut laser gemstone, on 6 June, your dear AD 1959, exactly 5,475 days after D-Day, in a large upper-floor apartment in the Chelsea Apartments Complex on West 26th Street between 9th and 10th Avenues on the south side of the street. It was a big, brick-faced apartment house with high ceilings, which Renee always liked, and which was always a high priority in her rental choices, and it had a nice lobby with a locking front door. That was unusual in those days, and it wasn't all that long ago. Believe me, if you kids would have psychedelic poker parties like I've been telling you, nobody would carry a gun. They'd be too busy dancing, shopping, snapping fingers, not shooting up the whole neighborhood with 9mm dum-dum rounds and splashing lead all over the public schools pushing their cheap crack and expensive cocaine all over the place, making such a racket with their drug sales and their flesh peddling that even with the boombox turned all the way up past ten, who can hear the final scores? <laughs> I didn't want to freak out my friends Donald Bird and Gabrielle Martin, both of whom had recently arrived in town after Donald's jazz club, the Bird House, had folded, so I didn't tell them that I was an immortal time-tripping slime mold. I didn't even tell them that the aliens were planning an attack on the Central Park Zoo that very afternoon, nor that they had probably targeted the Chelsea Plaza for the next attack and that they were likely to number among the next group of abductees, them, if they weren't careful. I was afraid they'd think I was nuts, so I simply avoided the whole truth and revealed only that I had a working philosopher's stone and that, moreover, I could turn leather iron into gold, make someone immortal, raise the dead, and make scalding hot cocoa in a single instant. I could have used some of that alchemical gold to keep the club going, Donald grunted with a laugh from the Formica kitchen table at which Renee was seated, trying to decide between a bear claw and a slice of lemon meringue pie, as Donald fished around on top of the stove for a match, then fumbled in a pocket for a pack of cigarettes, from which he extracted one, then puttering around in or near the sink for what I telepathically predicted would turn out to be a clean cup, that's exactly what it was. I only wish I'd verbalized my prediction or written it down in my daily journal so I could prove to everybody that I was telepathic as heck. The highest possible grade of mental contact. But it didn't occur to me that I might want witnesses several decades in the future, which means now, when I've written this stuff all down for my big fancy New York publisher, who doesn't have to keep a full military detachment and claim more mine perimeter outside his house, or hear the anti-aircraft batteries banging away at the Iraqi choppers overhead all night long like I do. The coffee, a product of a semi-antique, scalded and scaly percolator, tasted like burned rubber again. And the toast still hadn't come out of the toaster after a prolonged and obviously over sufficient period of time, at least 10 minutes, so Gabby began prying at it with a metal-handled butter knife. I restrained myself from advising her to pull out the plug from the wall socket before attempting to wrench the toast out of the toaster slot with a metal knife while resting the wet palm of the other hand on the metal rim of the kitchen sink. But the apartment was seriously overcrowded with four women and a variable number of men, and Gabby had really bad PMS every month, and it seemed like this would solve a lot of problems, so I (laughs) shut my mouth and waited for the natural flow of events, but she managed to retrieve the toast without a medical crisis unit's intervention. Lucky for her. I could have told her they didn't have medical crisis units back then in AD 1959, but nobody listened to me when I told them about Vietnam. Nobody listened to me when I told them about President Kennedy's assassination, the end of the Cold War, the destruction of the Berlin Wall, the reunification of Germany, the Gulf War, the end of the ethnic riots, and the horrible great plague of the late 20th or 22nd century, about which every slime mold student has to memorize faces and figures and facts. But I could have told Donald his jazz club would fold that any jazz and blues club was bound to fold, even if it were the best in the world, and particularly jazz and blues clubs anywhere outside New York City. All jazz clubs fold, unless the owner hires me as a consultant. And unquestioningly follows my foolproof method for making $1 million from jazz. The secret is to start with $2 million. <laughs> Look, I started to explain, while Gabby probed still deeper into the glowing depths of the GE toaster on the metal-rimmed, fake marble, formica topped kitchen table while resting one exposed elbow on Donald's shoulder, almost prompting me to say something at last about the dangers of electricity. I pulled up short and shut my big yap, though, when I remembered that it was Gabby and Donald who had devoured most of the contents of that morning's pastry box, and I decided to allow her to continue her dangerous metallic probing into the depths of the non-major household appliance— as we'd have called it at Hummocker Schlemmer. This ruby, I held the stone up in front of them, first under the dim electric bulb where it gave off an unsatisfying pulsing glow that nobody else could seem to see. Then over to the bright white curtain floor-length French window opening onto the 18-inch deep balcony on which we kept the flower pot where the brilliant daylight could make it catch fire is carved and polished by hand with the same methods used by Baruch Spinoza and other early glassmakers to precise scientific measurements within a tolerance of plus or minus ten thousandths of an inch. I waited a moment before continuing my technical exposition until Gabby at last got the toast out of the upside-down toaster by banging it on its already caved-in stamped metal sides over the sink while running the water to wash the crumbs down the drain. (laughs) I repressed a slight smile as I continued. It fits into a tube with a halogen light source behind it, and I tune it with a crystal-controlled diffraction grate. When it's polished properly, you can see you. Ca- when it's polished properly, you can fit it directly into the lens mounting on a thirty-five mm Leica 3C camera. See, I demonstrated gently fitting the laser gemstone into the lens mounting. You just screw the whole thing onto this wide-threaded nut, I explained, and aim it at people and take a snapshot and develop the print. Then you can see their auras, I said, referring to the curling effects I had discovered with my special camera. What the heck is an aura? Gabby muttered under her breath, and I became aware that it would not be a good time to develop an in-depth briefing session on the subject. This was the same moment when Don and Gabby wordlessly retired into Gabby's bedroom and stayed there the whole day, while I went out over to Tompkins Square Park, then over to Union Square Park, then over to Washington Square Park to try to find someone whom I might be able to tell. I guess I'd never noticed before because I was so preoccupied with folk singing and playing guitar when I walked around in the park and seen the chess players at the cast stone tables on Sundays that players were expected to drop a donation into a cup or slotted cardboard Quaker Oats cereal tube for the benefit of the squatter. Maybe that's why the tables are staked out years in advance. And if you want to sit there all day and collect quarters, you have to inherit the table or buy one from the previous homesteader. It cost me $7.50 in quarters just to explain the theory behind the laser ruby, and I hadn't even gotten to the part about the aliens when my chess opponent, an older gentleman who had clearly seen better chess, suddenly had to leave on some unexplained business. I can't imagine what kind of business a poverty-struck, wretched and starving, homeless chess player who has to play chess with idiots in the park every day for food money could possibly have on a nice afternoon like that. Cremity, how pressing could his business possibly have been? I couldn't help thinking he might be an alien sympathizer when I spotted him back at the same table not 15 minutes after I'd walked away. <laughs> I was just getting ready to read his mind when I realized I was hungry. You never keep a diabetic waiting for food, so I left the park and walked further downtown along McDougall Street toward the tiny Italian takeout on the northeast corner of mcdougall and bleaker a block south from the night owl cafe and one block west and three blocks north of my friend ed stevenson's house over on sullivan street and exactly four eastbound crosstown blocks and six uptown blocks from wanamaker's department store on wanamaker place ninth street and broadway where Dumont Studios originated the Captain video show and the Magic Cottage, and for a short while, until it went to the Midwest, Paul Tripp's Mr. Imagination every day after school. These four crosstown blocks revealed a great deal about the secret life of the city. Only a few doors down from McDougal Street you came across a little niche and narrow A.D. 19th century doorway cut into the frontage of an ancient tenement squeezed between two commercial buildings riddled with artists' lofts. The sign above the entrance read Village String Shop, and the narrow doorway opened to a slightly less narrow shop filled from floor to ceiling with stringed instruments from Stradivari and Gurnari to the latest Oscar Schmidt prototype auto harp he'd brought in from upstate that very morning. Les Paul was still inventing the electric guitar, but you could buy prototypes if you were brave enough to play them in front of audiences that still booed and hollered when you dared take up an electrically amplified anything. I still have my Les Paul, Early Gibson, Guild, Punched Metal, Street Box, Full Rosewood Back, Martin Dreadnought, and the original Stratocaster, which I still play on sessions. Further east, you'd have noted an Architecture 101 student's dream. Hundreds of cast metal frontages and early American, Dutch, Edwardian, and Stuart homes, which hadn't yet been torn down to make room for the many post-war commercial projects, which eventually overran Manhattan from river to river to river, if you know your local topography. It was in a town like this that we were overrun in that first big battle of Slime War I on that bleak, foggy morning of 2 July in your year 2018, when the aliens broke through our temporal defensive line on the New Jersey front. The deepening fog was just turning to a slow, relentless drizzle, which threatened our heavy ordnance and made progress toward Jersey City almost impossible. Several smaller UFOs, probably the M3A scout ships, not their heavier CT 103 gunships, had been reported by local human civilian spotters who thought they'd been drafted and trained to detect flights of zeppelins and other air raiders. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Gold Talks is produced by Nishit Kajar and sponsored by Jukebox Mind. Voice of EJ Gold, courtesy of GatewaysBooksandTapes.com For more information, visit IDHHB.com See you in the next episode. Until then, have a good one.